So, yep, there is smoke coming, or appears to be smoke and flames out of the uh, aircraft. Delta 77, if able, change the frequency 128.75, 2875. Any, any emergency vehicle on frequency, you're going to want uh, frequency 128.75. Emergency aircraft on 128.75. I think we're going to be off this runway for a while, so... You know, give me just a second. Just pause for a moment. Again, we have an emergency in progress, so just need to leave some room for some emergency vehicles to get through on them more in just a sec. And you had 1235, hold your position. That's not very bad, please. I was 4732, hold short Echo Delta. I was 4732, hold short Echo Delta. Okay, we're actually changing runways now. We have an emergency in progress to runway 8 currently. We had a bird strike with possible fire right now, so everyone's going to plan runway 17 left now. So everyone holding out spots uh, for east or south or north, plan runway 17 left for departure now. The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. Welcome aboard Flight 119 of the Squawk Ident podcast, recorded on the 22nd of September, 2022, from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On today's flight, I'm joined by Captain Roger, Alex, and Rob D. Together, we will discuss the FAA's denial to Republic Airways' request to be exempted from the minimum ATP flight hour requirements, American Airlines' plans to close some of the flight attendant bases in California, Rob D.'s smoke-in-the-cockpit event, Roger's ovation after the best landing his VIPs ever experienced, and we explore Milan-Italy layovers with Captain Keith. John Gruber sends us some audio updates from the STIHL National Championship Air Races and Air Show in the biggest little city in the world, Reno, Nevada. All this and more on the 119th episode of the Squawk Ident Podcast. Joining us today is superb aviator and Squawk Ident Podcast co-host. Is a former international professional racquetball champion, a member of the 9G Club, an AMP and avionics tech, an the aircraft commander, a boat skipper, commercial drone operator, and currently an Airbus pilot for Legacy Airlines. The name we use here on the show is an alias to our employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. Joining us from his home podcast studio where he is chasing down electrical gremlins on his daughter's VW Jetta from somewhere in Flower Mound, Texas, help us in welcoming our very own Mr. Rob D. Rob, how you doing? Hey, it's good to be back, man. May as well add an auto mechanic to that list. I'm getting ready to tear into my daughter's car and fix the alternator. But, but anyway, it's good to be back. Looking forward to the show, man. Yeah, and, you know, the minute you uh, said VW Jetta <laughs> and electrical gremlins, oh, yeah. man. Uh, <laughs> I, I had know. a VW I know. Jetta. I everybody's eyes are rolling. Yeah, uh, <laughs> back in the day, I had one for about six months, and that's about as long as I could handle it. <laughs> So, but yeah, right I feel on. you, man. I feel you. Well, good, and it's, and it's good that you can do that. You know, yeah. you you have well, the ability, the knowledge, and the skill to to work on the car. I, I just did some I'm oil changes on the <laughs> on both my vehicles, and yeah, 
it's a yeah. full day event. Yeah. <laughs> well, good luck with that. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Well, also joining us today is another exceptional aviator and Squawk Ident co-host. He is a professional CFI, IIIMEI flight instructor, a former Embraer 145 airline pilot, a King Air instructor, a Dassault Falcon 900, a Dassault, sorry, Dassault Falcon 900EZ 2000 pilot, and a G650 commander. He is a captain, director of flight operations, and corporate operator as well. He joins us fresh from his Cabo San Lucas layover, where he is nursing a back injury where his OLD has flared up from his <laughs> podcast, actually from his mobile podcast studio from somewhere in Mexico. Please help us and welcome back to the show, Captain Roger. Captain, how you doing? I, I think that uh, my mobile podcast studio is a little generous this time since I'm just laying in my hospital bed with this up close, you know, might as well just be in this hospital bed that I'm laying in. Yeah, I, I can't even sit up straight for too long. <laughs> I don't see your IV or anything going on. I, I, no, fortunately, <laughs> I don't need any of that, but I am feeling rather... Tequila amazing. in Mexico. Tequila fixes everything. It fixes everything. I tried that yesterday. Uh, didn't really work. No? Uh, maybe, it, maybe it was just quantity. Maybe I just needed more. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah I'm feeling more, pretty laying down more. here. Yeah. Um, but it's slightly better than yesterday, so I guess there's that. Well, good. You know, and I hope you feel better. Um, I, I got to say that uh, I, I had a my OLD flared up as well uh, about a week ago. I was at the gym. I've been working out now. I joined a gym about two months ago and um, been hitting that religiously when I'm home in the morning. Um, and the gym rats now, I have my circle of gym rat friends, you know, and, and, uh, and we lift weights together and push each other and, and do all kinds of, you know, barking and stuff like that, you know, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I went on a new machine. I went on the Smith machine and my buddy's like, come on, man, you could do this. Put your feet together, do this, do this. And I, I went down and, and as I was coming up from this squat, my right knee, we had, which is kind of always had a kind of flare up injury from, from many years ago suddenly decided it wasn't going to work anymore <laughs> it gave way and uh my back left side of my back took all the uh the brunt of that lift um instead of just dropping it as i should have and uh yeah pulled my line lat on my left side and uh, ended up doing one of these televisits with the doctor everything's on the phone now as uh, unless you want to wait like six weeks to get in and see a doctor and they uh they said yeah use some of this uh, over-the-counter stuff that i've been using and so far, so good. I, it took me about seven days to kind of recover. And hopefully, you know, you, you can be back on your feet within a few days. Because um, back like injuries sick call. suck. There's sounds a, there's like a the sick hoping. call. Yeah, yeah sick call. There's <laughs> nobody to call, Rob. <laughs> welcome, welcome to part 91. Hey. Rob, they call him when they're sick. It doesn't work <laughs> the other way around. Uh, that is true. <laughs> That is, there's a lot of truth to that statement. Oh my gosh, yeah. So you can't just call in sick like, uh, like a spoiled airline guys, right? That's right. Spoiled airline guys. Speaking of spoiled airline guys, Mr. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Alex is joining us today. Another exceptional aviator, flight instructor. He's a U.S. Navy Reserve's Chief Information Systems Technician, an Embraer 175 pilot for Sandpiper Regional, the alias to one of our legacies, wholly owned a regional airlines. Joining us from the dungeon of the B terminal in Dallas Fort Worth, where he's getting ready to to sign in for a trip here in the next what thirty minutes or so. So, help us welcoming back to the show, Mr. Alex D. Alex, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm ready to go on this four day. It's exciting for me. Um, 
happy to be back on the show and good seeing uh, that Roger's alive in some kind of state that he is in. But, you know, he's been missed on the show, surely. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you. Thank you, thank you, Alex. I appreciate it. Somebody's got to keep flying all these uh, these other airplanes around. Yeah, all these all these nuisance airplanes. Slow to your slowest practical airspeed. You're following a Dassault Falcon into the field. Oh, Roger, is that you? <laughs> Whoa. Well, we'll we'll visit that a little later on in the show if you Uh want to talk about speeds, ladies and gentlemen. As he sends me uh, snapshots or screenshots from uh, his airplane as he's like climbing through 42,000 feet at 1,000 feet a minute. Yeah, right, whatever. That was 45,000 Oh, sorry. At 1,000 feet a minute at Mach 8.5. If you're going to tell the story, make it a complete story. Hey, hey, I could do Mach 8.5 in my airplane as long as I point the nose down and ignore a red line. Yeah. And we're on we'll fire. Speed, speed, speed. If you have to be in an unusual attitude to make it get to eight five, it doesn't count. Oh, we'll forget it then. Oh, no, it totally counts. Does it count? It totally counts. If, if yeah. it, it registers, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I gotta go. I gotta go sign in, get to the gate, and all that stuff, and be there. So, well, Alex. Uh, are, are you giving me the signal? It, it's already time for you to go and sign in. Yeah, I got about an hour left to my flight, so I gotta, you know, get up to the gate. You know, walk that means my you got way at down. least fifty-five minutes to go. Just show up with your Starbucks in your hand and ask the captain. Did you do the walk around? Is that oh, everything yeah, totally. ready? I'm sure that'll go over. All well. set to go. <laughs> no, see, I want to get there first. Four-star checklist. Roll it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get that's settled first, and you know do my. That's walk the first thing you say when you walk there. in is just say four-star checklist. And see what the response is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's run it. Well, Alex, this was a very short, uh, brief hello, but uh, and after your introduction there, pleasure to have you on, and good luck with your or flying today. Where are you where are you off to? Uh, I'm doing a Monterey, California turn, and then an, uh, oh. to Amarillo overnight. Monterey, California, beautiful layover. Um, if you're doing the uh, the visual approach, I highly recommend putting in, I think this is a GPS, um, and keep on those altitudes. Otherwise, you'll get the terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up. You'll see what I'm talking about. Gotcha. Yeah. No, this is the first time I've been to an airport that I've flown into, you know, when I was in flight training. So this is uh, coming okay. full circle for me. Yeah. If you get to do the, if they're landing uh, east, maybe you get to do the Pebble Beach uh, arrival. One can hope. <laughs> they won't be landing east. No, they no I know. It's, I've done it a few yeah. times. It's like a rarity, like in Carlsbad, where they, you know, like it lands from runway six once every like five years. So, yeah, just to keep current. <laughs> yeah, pretty much just so that the, the air traffic controllers can know, oh, yeah, this is what it feels like again. Nice. So, nice. Well, gentlemen, you, Alex. All right. Good get out of here. Let's see. Yep, see you guys. Bye. Bye. Well, now that Alex is, uh, came to say hello and goodbye uh let's let's get on with the show here uh you know recently uh we've been all flying crazy busy schedules um i know uh, this month uh, i said it and i think in the last show that i was granted a uh, five-day trip lines basically uh so i had four or five-day trips uh this month and the downside to a five-day trip is that you can't trade it for anything ever. It's red, redder. It's purple. It's it's just 
impossible. You can't trade it, can't drop it, um, can't move it. So basically what you get is what you get. Um, I've learned a valuable lesson, uh, which for the following month for October, I've already been was awarded uh, a variety of trips, some of them two-day trips. Uh, and the reason I bid that way uh, is because that way if I wanted to move a trip around, if I had an appointment that I needed to get to, I can trade that trip for another trip or maybe I could, if I wanted more hours, I could trade a two-day for a four-day or something like that or uh, or I might be able to even drop a trip and pick up a uh, different flying on a different week or whatever. So I've learned my lesson. Uh, but these five-day trips have been pretty exhausting. Uh, they all include something in Hawaii, so I can't complain. Last week, I had a very cool trip. I posted a little bit. I posted a few photos on social media uh, for that. I got to stay at the TWA Hotel at the JFK International Airport. It was a, a, I wouldn't say short layover, but it was relatively short. I think it was like 13 hours. Um, and so, yeah, we landed at JFK in the evening. And what they've done is they've taken the, what used to be the TWA terminal, airport terminal um, in the 60s and 70s. And then, you know, they've since built around it. It was a museum for a time when I was based there back in 2015. Uh, it was a museum you could walk through, and they had static displays of a constellation and, you know, pilot uniforms, flight attendant uniforms. Uh, the original terminal was all redone to make it look, you know, like it was back in the day. And you could walk through it. Since then, they have built a, a retro-themed hotel around it. And the TWA Hotel is now pretty pretty cool place to to go hang out. They have convention areas so that they have events there, dances and parties and whatnot. Um, I got to stay in one of their uh, rooms, were themed room, and everything was really done kind of in that uh, Don Draper, Mad Men era, you know, furniture, uh, you know, uh, lighting, everything. So it was kind of cool. And to be a pilot or an aviator, and stay at a place that represents the golden age of aviation was quite a treat. I did go down to the, the Constellation Bar, which is now, it's an airplane static display, and inside it's a bar. Um, cool. You can go in there. Very expensive. <laughs> I highly recommend at least getting a drink and the olives. Uh, it was very, very cool. Um, the whole place was just filled with flight crew members <laughs> i think maybe there's one or two non-flight crew members in the place um and like i said it's pricey but well worth it for the experience and the next day uh, i walked around the hotel saw some of their displays uh and then before you knew it it was time to go and get going and and we did we ended up doing a phoenix layover the next night and then from phoenix uh, we went back to la and then la to honolulu and then spent what 30 hours in honolulu then did the red eye back landed at LAX at 6.30 in the morning. That's what constitutes five days. Um, so these, that's how these trips have been all month, and they've been exhausting um, because on that last day, like Rob always says, no power tools, no financial decisions. Nope. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Roger, you, you're nursing, unfortunately, a, a tennis injury uh, there in Cabo. Normally, what would you be doing in Cabo on your layover? Uh, you know, for me personally, I probably wouldn't be doing a whole lot different. It would just be much more comfortable. I'd probably go out a little bit more. 
um, different people like different things. And we have the flexibility. One of the nice things that we have in the part 91 world is we make our own hotel reservations and different people have different preferences. Some people like the downtown type scene. Some people like the quote unquote suburb suburbia um, scene. I'm more of the quiet. So we're outside of town at an um, all inclusive resort actually yeah. right on the Pacific. Um, so I don't really need to leave the grounds because they've got like four or five different restaurants that you can go eat at. Hmm. Um, but I'd probably be out a little bit more. I would probably go get a workout in at the gym, which I am not doing today. I'm hoping <laughs> that maybe tomorrow I can at least do some walking of light walking. Yeah. Um, but like I say, for me, um, I take these opportunities mostly to kind of to relax one other nice thing, unlike you guys, you guys have a four or five day trip. A four or five day trip for me you, usually is a lot of sitting. We don't land at night and then take off. You know, your short hour or overnight's 13 hours. You know, we'll come somewhere and then we just sit here. Um, so I'm mostly just kind of enjoying the time, except I am quite uncomfortable this time. And so I'm kind of much more stuck than in a single place than I would otherwise be. Yeah. <laughs> Now, if their gym, if it's at all inclusive and their gym is decked out pretty nice, is usually it's actually the case. a pretty nice gym. I've they been might, here before. They might have yeah, those big foam rollers that might feel good on your back. It's possible they might have some of those, and they got. I think they've got some of those with the Bosu balls or something as well. Mm. Um, yeah, you might. And then I think, they have the spa there too, right? Don't they have the massage? They do stuff? have a spa. Uh, that's not part of the all-inclusive part right and captain roger's not about to go drop that kind of money <laughs> on getting having somebody you know give him a massage yeah so. maybe they have uh you know some big dude with big strong hands be like come here i will break you, <laughs> you know, if i thought honestly if i thought it would help i probably would do it i think that it's you know i've, I've had this problem with my back for a long time and as i've gotten older um this is actually the second time in three months that it's been this bad um and i'm not entirely sure what i'm going to do about it i probably should like you did maybe consult somebody because unfortunately like it, it's it's just a it's a weird thing it happened one the last time it was when i was playing basketball and it's not a, a sudden acute thing that comes on um you know i kind of feel a tightness but i kept playing you know yeah. i did not move very well i did i lost which i was not surprised at uh, but then, you know, I get home and it tightens up. And then yeah. when I woke up yesterday morning, it, it was the worst. Yeah. Um, and I, li I, I couldn't really move all that much. So, yeah. I hear uh, another common injury in tennis is tennis elbow. Have you ever had that? I have not. Because um, no. I heard there's another, is... there's another injury that's worse than that, though. It's called tennis balls. Got to tell you, dude, oh. that hurts. Have you experienced tennis balls yourself? Oh, that's painful. Just man. don't pick up other people's balls. <laughs> you know, if you're gonna pick up the balls on the court, pick up your own balls. And you can wear gloves when you're picking up balls. Oh yeah, just but don't touch anybody else's. Don't touch anybody else's uh, balls. That's generally frowned upon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, hope you feel better, man. Thank those you. back injuries are those can last a while. You know, not, yeah. We just keep coming back sometimes and you know, it's just one of those things that it happens and then yeah, it's hard to get it back to back to hundred yeah, percent. It's been pretty frustrating. Um, and there's yeah. just no rhyme or reason to when it happens. No. Like I say, it's not like it's, you know, 
I can pinpoint, hey, I did this, and that's right. what happened. It's just kind of yeah, yeah. I remember uh, a few weeks ago, not to you know take this too much further, but I was working on a car of all things. It was probably three or four years ago, and I was just kind of down there in an awkward angle, and I sneezed. Chew. Sneezing can I sneeze. do bad things. Oh my god! I had this massive back spasm yeah. cramp. All while I'm like in this, this really compromised position underneath the car, and I I I was panicking because I had to move in a certain position, but because of where I was, I couldn't do it. And ah, oh, dude, that was I've had that happen too. Had. Sneezing, sneezing sometimes scares me. Cause like, what's that going to do? You know, it wrenches your, it's such a sudden sharp movement. I think I pooped my pants. Yeah. There's so many things, right? You could like muscles, you could shart. I mean, (laughs) it's just nothing good. Oh Oh, boy. Nothing Uh, good will come of sneezing. Anyway, moving on. (laughs) See, this is what we talk about here on the Squawk and End podcast. We talk about sharding. Important stuff. Yeah. It's real life stuff, fellas. Yeah. Well, you know, have you ever, have you ever had, actually, in all seriousness now, have you ever had a situation where you're on the flight deck, you're in, you're flying along, or maybe you're getting ready for takeoff, and, you know, you're, you're a responsible person, you make sure that, you know, you, you use the restroom facility and everything before you go, and all of a sudden, you just have this feeling like, oh my God, it's coming. It's coming. And do you, how do you handle that? I mean, if you're on an airplane uh, that has a restroom facility or a bathroom or a lav, uh, that's not really a big deal. But what happens when you're on an airplane with no facility whatsoever? What yeah. do you do? Have you ever had that happen yeah. to you? I've had it happen, not at work. Um, and of course, we've all had the uh, the other opposite end of that spectrum is when you're descending and landing and you're like, oh, I got to go, but I'm going to wait. And then all of a sudden you descend and the pressure builds up and you're like, holy crap, I got to go now. Um, but I've had it where I was flying GA and we just got done eating, um, you know, lunch or whatever. And I did go to the bathroom, you know, right before we took off, but sure enough, like five minutes after we took off, it got, I had to go pee again. I mean, I guess I didn't empty out my bladder adequately enough, but man, we're climbing out in a twin, you know, single engine Cessna. And I'm like, crap, man, I got to piss. And <laughs> just like Dumb and Dumber, the only thing I had was like a, a Gatorade bottle <laughs> in the airplane. So uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I made use of that. But, oh, man, that was not a fun experience because I was like, should I go back? You know, should we just land somewhere? And when you got to yeah. go, you got to go. I remember yeah. having this conversation with, with you, Tony, probably a year ago yeah. when it was just you and I and another important squawk ident topic of the uh, pilot urination habits. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, I have not ever on departure had that problem. I, I, I was definitely, for whatever reason, just tried to avoid the walk of shame on the Embraer or the 145. Yeah, I remember where the lab's that. all the way in the back. Yeah, And yep. there was that one time in Denver. It was not good. And thank goodness we landed. We were coming from the east, and we landed on what two six, I think, two five or two six, whatever yeah, that so farthest runway to the yeah, east. Yeah, eight and two six. Yeah, yeah, and kind of landed straight in and turned left and into the ramp. But I think I was the first person off the airplane because it was it was rather dire. Yeah, that's the worst feeling in the world, man. 
Yeah, and you know when you're relatively young and you you know have uh, a strong, you know, healthy body, you can kind of hold it and just you know get off the airplane and go and go use a facility. I mean, sometimes though, especially as you get older. Now I haven't had anything like this happen to me, but I've heard stories. You know, sometimes as you get older, your body just doesn't have the ability to to really hold it in. And you know, this as a, you know, you know, your body, only, you know, your body. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you kind of have to go. And I've had stories where I, people have had accidents in their seat, mm-hmm. you know, they, yeah, they yeah. just, they could not keep it, you know, especially older, uh, pilots, older captains that, you know, maybe yeah. for whatever reason, they just, they couldn't hold it any longer. And that was it. Um, yeah. and, and if that ever, occurs to you or to your fellow pilot use a lot of discretion and have give leave them their dignity um and you know that's why we don't really share oh i heard this one time this guy i'm not interested in that i don't want to hear about how many pilots have pooped in the bag i don't care um but it happens and i think the biggest pet peeve i have is when you know I I do my best. I, I'm like every two hour bladder kind of guy. I drink a lot of coffee. Yeah, and I, I drink a lot of water too. Um, so I'm every two hours or so. I check the clock and I go, oh hey, how about a lav break? I also mm-hmm. try to plan the lav break around the flight attendants. You know, mm-hmm. I try not to do it within the first hour because they're doing a service or whatever they're doing their first class meals or whatever. Um, so I try to to pick a time that it's convenient for them where I think it would be convenient for them. I also pick a time not at top of descent because right. when you're changing altitudes and things get busy, you need all hands on deck and it's just not smart. So I try to plan, if it's a three hour long flight, I try to plan the lab break right in the middle. As a matter of fact, on our ND or our navigation display in route, there's something called ETP or <laughs> equal time point, meaning right. uh, at that point, if, however long the flight is, if the flight's two hours and it's you know one hour to go back or one hour to go forward, ETP, equal time point, means whether you go forward or go back, you'll be airborne for the same amount of time. It's calculating winds and everything else. So um, we, we jokingly call that estimated time to pee. Yep. So when we reach ETP, it's time to pee. Yep. Um, and that's what we usually do. Now, if the flight is five and a half, six and a half hours, then obviously you're not going to go three hours sometimes. Sometimes you can, but you know, if it's early in the morning, you've been drinking coffee, then it, you just have to go every couple hours. So it gets very frustrating when you've been holding it or whatever, and you look over at the other pilot and say, hey, yeah. Uh, should we do a lab break? Like, yeah, sure. Let's set it up. So you call the flight attendant, right? Ding dong. Yeah. Uh, can we set up a lab break when you get a chance? Oh, okay. Well, they're in the middle of their service. It'll be a minute. Um, okay. You know, we're thinking, you know, a couple minutes. And then 15, 20, 25 minutes goes by, 30 minutes goes by, and you're like, what the heck? So you call them back. And you're like, hey, um, how's that lab break? Now, at this point, your eyeballs are floating, right? Yeah, you're seeing urgent, yellow. Yeah. It's urgent now. It's getting, maybe even getting painful. And, oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I'll get somebody up here. Oh, but somebody's in the lab. And it's like, okay. And then that person's in the lab for 10, 15 minutes doing God knows what. So now you're up there doing, like, you can't sit still. Both the pilots are like, just think, if something, just think <laughs> if something were to happen right then, right there. 
Yeah. Right. Where from that point on for the rest of the flight, you're not leaving your seat. It can happen. So that's yeah. my pet peeve is like when we call for a lab break, you know, yeah. it may not be urgent right then and there, but it could, it could get into that situation relatively quickly and it's painful. And you're, trust yeah. me, uh, urinary stones are a very serious thing for pilots, um, as yeah. are, you know, bladder issues and you know, prostate issues and all these, all the things that are associated with sitting down and not drinking enough water and not urinating when you got to go, you got to go. Um, so yeah, that, that's as a pilot, you want to be cognizant of that. Don't hold it. It's not healthy. Any pilot that's had urinary stones will tell you it's the most painful yeah. thing you can imagine. Yep. Yep. PDP and ETP. That's what I use too. P yep. departure P. Pre departure P. Yeah. ETP is my mind. Uh, I call it excellent time to pee. <laughs> excellent time to pee. There you go. <laughs> so, and then also if we have food when pass the trays back, that's kind of a time when yep. I like to go to just. Yep. Yeah. But, and, yeah. And a lot of times now, especially on some of these flights that are maybe you say around the three hour mark, uh, mm -hmm. if there's a meal, for the pilots, Rogers you know, get you know, winding it up. Eyes are rolling. Winding yep. it up. Getting ready. Getting ready. <laughs> when there's a meal for the pilots, um, and then you know we usually at the halfway point, they they'll say, "Okay, I've done with my first class service. I've warmed up your meals. Do you want them?" They'll pass it up. We'll have our our meals. We'll drink our coffee. Whatever we do. And sometimes you know you're flying with a, a pilot or a captain that. Right before descent, he'll say, okay, let's pass back the trays and do a last minute lab break, like an hour to go left in the flight. That way when we land, we're not waiting to use the restroom before we go to the next airplane. We just go, go, go. Um, and sometimes we don't do that. We just leave the trays on the floor of the cockpit and they're like, yeah, no, we're going to be on the ground anyway. Let's not open the door unnecessarily. So I, I noticed it's like a 50-50 chance that you're going to either have a, a captain that wants to get rid of the trays or a captain that says, we'll just pass them back on the ground. Rob, yeah. what are you, what are you experiencing out there on the line? Yeah, it's 50, 50. I don't, and it doesn't matter to me either, but you know, if, if I have to use the restroom, I'm like, yeah, it's let's pass the trays back and hit the head. What do you say? And they're like, yeah, usually everybody's like, oh, okay, let's go. You know, never really push back. Yeah. And I try not to wait to do any of that. Also, like, like you mentioned earlier, when, when we're already in our descent, I don't like to, um, you know, go then because, you know, things start to get busy and, um, it's not a good time I, in my mind. It's not a really good time to go. Um, so yeah, that's, yeah. that's my deal. And Roger, how, I mean, you, you're pretty much at your own discretion. You can go whenever you want. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah they, it's not, it's not quite the same consideration that you guys have for multiple reasons. A, we just don't have as many people and B, we don't need to, um, you know, the, the security issues with opening the door that you guys have that we do not. Um, so we do not, it's not something that we need to concern schedule. Yeah. Now, do you even have a door FMS. or is it a curtain? Yeah, it's just a curtain and that curtain, I mean, realistically speaking is really there, not for us. It's for, the passengers should they decide that they want to do whatever it is the passengers sometimes do huh uh-huh noise now, canceling headphones my don't friend don't give me <laughs> yeah i mean we that's not something that we you know that we really have but um but like i say realistically it's actually really some more for the passengers than it is for the crew yeah yeah 
and and so you don't have to deal with any of that whole I've left the cockpit so I need to have someone come up here and sit in the seat no. none of that nope yeah because obviously I mean we just usually have the two crew members and that's and that's it we don't have a another crew member flight attendant or anything that even could sit up there if you're gonna have somebody else sit up there it's just gonna be a passenger who's not gonna know anything anyway yeah now, yeah. are you ever um, disturbed throughout the flight by your passengers saying, "Hey, I can't find this, or I need this," and you have to get out of your seat to go get something? Oh yeah, we go back. We go back there all the time for one reason or another. Um, a lot of times, it's you know, there's another flight coming up. There's a, a week or two ago um, where a guy had several flights that he wanted to talk about, and so kind of working on the logistics since I do a lot of that, um, working on that. Um, that's typically why we go back there. Mm -hmm. uh, but that does happen pretty on, on all the long flights that happens on short flights. Obviously we're no one, no one really goes anywhere, but, um, we'll get up, take a break to get up and stretch. And then, Hey, how's it going back? You know, how's everything back here just while we're stretching. Mm -hmm. And then those conversations can take place as well. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Well, speaking of uh, using the facilities in route, the FAA has denied Republic Airways the 1,500-hour exemption petition. Now, we talked about this a couple shows ago, that there mm -hmm. are regional airlines out there that are trying to circumvent the 1,500-hour rule that went into effect uh, as a result of the Colgan crash that happened in, when was that? I gotta look that up. That was like 2007, I want to say. Nine. Now, the ATP, Air Transport Pilot Certificate, is a mandatory certificate that all pilots must obtain prior to being employed by a 121 carrier, a regional airline uh, or, you know, a major airline or what have you. And there were certain regional airlines that were saying, hey, we can't hire and we need to, we need to get an exemption from this rule because we can train them and, and kind of get them going before that. Well, the FAA has denied Republic Airways the 1,500-hour exemption petition. This uh, – I'm going to read a little bit from an article from uh, avweb.com. Uh, this article is from Kate O'Connor, published on the September 19th of 2022. And it states that the FAA has denied a Republic Airways petition for an exemption from regulations requiring pilots applying for an air transport pilot certificate to have logged a minimum of 1,500 hours. In the petition, the airline asks that graduates from its Leadership in Flight Training Academy, or LIFT, be allowed to apply for a Restricted Air Transport Pilot, or RATP, certificate, allowing them to serve as first officer in Part 121 operations with the same reduced experience requirements as military or former military pilots who may apply for an RATP with 750 hours total time. Republic argued that its proposed RATP program would exceed the safety standards of the military RATP, as well as making airline pilot career opportunities more accessible for qualified individuals from underrepresented groups. After full consideration of Republic's petition for exemption and the public comments, the FAA has determined that the relief request is not in the public's interest and would adversely affect safety. The agency stated in its decision that the FAA finds that the supporting material and lift historical data does not sufficiently support Republic's claim that the Republic RATP program is sufficiently comparable 
to the training program of the military branch to warrant a reduction in flight hours. Republic also argued that its petition, which was filed last April, that its proposed program would provide a service to the public by reducing by producing more pilots to satisfy continuing commercial aviation demand, including benefiting small communities who rely on commercial aviation services. The FAA disagreed that granting the exemption would address any pilot shortages, noting that the exemption process is not an avenue to addressing the hiring difficulties of an operator that may result in severe cuts to particular areas. The 1,500-hour rule was adopted by the FAA at the discretion of Congress following the 2009 crash of Colgan Air Flight 3407. Now, we've talked about 3407 many times. It changed the history and and, uh, trajectory of the aviation career field. Colgan Air Flight 3407 uh, was a Continental Connection airplane flight that crashed in just outside of Buffalo, New York um, in on February 12th, 2009. The aircraft was a Bombardier Q400, and it entered an aerodynamic stall from which it did not recover and crashed into a house at 6038 Long Street in Clarence Center, New York at 10.17 p.m. Eastern Time, killing all 49 passengers and crew members on board, as well as one person inside the house. The NTSB, or the National Transportation Safety Board, concluded that the accident investigation and published a f- concluded the accident investigation and published a final report on Tuesday, February 2nd, 2010, which found the probable cause to be the pilot's inappropriate response to the stall warning. Flight 3407 is the most recent aviation incident involving a U.S.-based airline that resulted in multiple casualties. This is from a Wikipedia page uh, that discussed Colgan Air Flight 3407. So we've talked about this many times. Um, Both pilots did things incorrectly. And the FAA actually audited that airline uh, in the year following this incident and found that multiple instances of similar um, slow flight at critical phases was happening. Uh, The recovery was really what caused them to stall and crash. Uh, The basic recovery of a stall for any private pilot out there is you release the back pressure, bring the nose forward, get air flowing over the wing as soon as possible, increase power, and you don't change anything to the configuration until you've recovered from the stall. Because if you make the wing smaller by raising flaps, then you're just going to re-enter the stall even worse. And these are all things that they did wrong. They pulled back on the stick, fought the stick shaker, fought the stick pusher, and the first officer who was not really sufficiently trained in the recovery on this aircraft was acting as if they were doing a go-around and brought the flaps up, in which case the airplane winged over and crashed straight down into his home at a low altitude. Um, It was a very tragic thing, and it was on the the heels of the Miracle Flight, where Sullenberger put an airplane, an Airbus, uh, was it a 319 or 320 down into the Hudson, and everyone survived. 320. The 320, yeah. yeah. Everyone survived. And so, you know, the, the country was looking at pilots like, oh, wow, you guys are heroes. And then months later, this crash happened, 
And then it's like, oh, regional pilots are, they're dangerous, you know? Um, and it was very unfortunate. So the ATP rule is there for a reason. Uh, I, I get it. I see the hours and how long it takes to build that many hours and how people would be discouraged to become an airline pilot because they think, oh, crap, after I get my ratings, now I got to go fly for another thousand plus hours just to get a job? Yeah. Um, and it's because when you're at this level where you have 50 or so passengers that are depending on you doing the right thing, uh, yeah, experience matters. Uh, gentlemen, yeah. what do you what do you have to say about this? Um, I wish I had an intelligent response to that. I, I, I don't know. You know, I can see, I, I do not know how much safer airlines are or flying in general is just because we have changed. Uh, we've made those changes that, you know, there was the rest rule changes. There was the, the pilot flight hour changes. Those were the two the two big ones, to be honest, I don't know how much safer flying is just because we made those changes, but I wouldn't necessarily say that I disagree with the changes that we made either, nor would I say that giving, um, in this case, um, was it Republic, I think, right? Mm -hmm. um, giving Republic a, a, an out or an exemption would be appropriate either. Um, like you were kind of alluding to at, I, I mean, at this level, you know, at this level, there is no higher level. Um, than what you guys specifically do, where you do fly, you know, hundred million dollar airplanes around with 150 to 200 people or more in the back, um, sometimes less, you know, depending on the size of the airplane, but um, there is no higher level. And the experience that one should be expected to have in order to do that job to the best of somebody's ability, I think is appropriate. But like I said at the beginning, people make mistakes. That captain who was flying obviously had well over the minimums, um, what the minimums that are established now. And he was the one that was flying and he was the one that made the incorrect control inputs. Yes, the FO brought up the flaps, but that doesn't change the fact that if you're in a stall, full aft yoke is not gonna help anything. And and, and people just, people make mistakes no matter how, you know, no matter how much experience they have. But I think that it is less likely for things to happen, the more experience you have. And, you know, it's kind of just one of those circles that I don't, I don't know if there is a great answer. I, like I say, I don't know if it's necessarily safer, but I, but I don't disagree with it either. I don't think that it was a foolish thing that they did. Um, maybe some of the rest requirements is a little overblown, but but not so much the 1500 hours. I don't think that that's a, you know, an unreasonable amount of flight time to have for somebody to have before they're flying an air, an air transport category aircraft. Yeah. Now I feel the same way. I mean, I look back when I was a flight instructor, if this ruling would have happened on the heels of me potentially getting a job somewhere, I'd be very upset because, you know, I, I I've, got my training down, why can't I get a job? Um, but when you look at the quality of product, product being the pilot, the quality of product coming out at 1500 hours versus say a commercial pilot certificate and maybe two or 300 hours, which is all you used to need to be an FO. 
And then you would build your time at an airline or a charter operator or a cargo operator, and you would build your time in the right seat. And once you had the minimum time that they were looking for for an ATP, which is 1,500 hours, and most airlines for PIC wanted more like 2,000 hours or something like that, it made more sense. Um, and now I look at it from a perspective of, of you know, more than a couple decades here in the aviation community, and I'm totally okay with the 1,500-hour rule. And why should we give an exemption to one carrier and not the other? If they want to reduce the 1,500-hour rule to 750 hours across the board, then I'd say, okay, this is a fair assessment. <clears throat> they've, excuse me, they've found that you know the pilots coming out at 750 hours are just as competent, just as safe, and just as experienced as the 1,500-hour pilots then yes, I'd say go for it, 750 for everyone. But to give one carrier an exemption because they have their own flight training program, they're not the only ones. I mean, most of the majors are now buying out schools and having their own flight training program. Rob, what do you think? Do you think that this is a good ruling from the FAA? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I don't know all the details and, you know, all the numbers that uh supported their decision um because <laughs> obviously i was not involved in that process however you know the the change like we've you know all stated and and uh you read in the article have um come as a result of several incidents that you know over time forced them to look at um the minimum requirements as well as rest rules because remember uh, 117 FAR 117, where it comes to, uh, you know, flight time, duty time stuff was also, uh, a result from the Colgan accident, or at least it forced them to look at it. But, um, you know, if you step back even further in time from the uh, Colgan incident or accident, um, you know, the, the work rules they had in place leading up to that accident were rules that were established long, long time ago. I think, I don't quote me on this, but I think it was back into the fifties, maybe into the forties. So, you know, and what, what, what has happened to the national airspace system and airplanes and aircraft and, you know, operators, it's become more complex, more, you know, very uh, obviously more busy. Um, and, you know, the airplanes fly faster and, you know, there's a whole plethora of variables that, you know, have changed since back in those times when these rules were invented. Um, and of course, you need to change your training um, to match uh, these these changes as well as your experiences. Because uh, as we know, especially in 121 operator, uh, there you can have somebody who's experienced in, in aviation and flying airplanes, but until they're put un under until they're put under the pressure cooker of the exact environment that we're flying in, um, you know, that's, that's where you need to, you know, minimize your mistakes and show how much experience or that you've been in these, uh, this position before or the situation before. And, you know, through that training and education and experience, be able to work through the situation and the problem that, you know, gives you the most successful outcome. And you don't get that, you know, at a lower time or, you know, without going through schooling or anything like that. So I think it's a good change. I, I don't, I don't, I, I didn't think they were going to 
make a change, um, you know, in regards to that. Cause it all the one big word that this ruling came from is safety. That's it. That's the reason why they did it. Yeah. So, yeah. Now the, the FAR 117 rest requirements that we kind of just kind of talked about a little bit um, was a change that was supposed to allow pilots more rest time. I think Roger mentioned it. Um, these all came after the, the, the updating of the FARs to be more in line with modern practices. But at the same time, the FAR 117 rest requirement ruling allows pilots to fly more hours. More. Yeah. Uh, yes, they you know those eight hour min rest with compensatory rest that within 24 hours of the min rest and all that yeah. stuff, that's all gone. Okay. Flight attendants yeah. still operate under the part 121 rest rules. The pilots operate under part 117 rest rules. And, but there are days where I'm, I flew almost nine hours the other day, uh, you know, cumulatively in one day in yeah. 24 hour period. And I gotta say, I, you're just as tired, if not more tired than if, because eight hours rest I can understand how that's too not enough. I think 12 hours, personally, as I get older, 12 hours should be the yeah, minimum, um, not 10. Uh, but, you know, sometimes on these 10-hour layovers or 11-hour layovers, uh, especially uh, like some most of my trips that start with a red eye, I end up doing like LA to Miami, land in Miami at 6.30 in the morning, and then depart at 6 o'clock at night, which, you know, between your your uh, post-flight duty of 15 minutes or 20 minutes, depending on what it is, and then your hour prior, uh, you go back on the clock. So you end up having just just over 10 hours of rest. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the FAR says eight hours of sleep opportunity. What that means is they give you 10 hours to go from the airport curb back to the airport curb. That's an hour of transportation to the hotel and an hour of transportation from the hotel, which they've calculated to be about eight hours of rest opportunity. And the way the FAA has interpreted that is that's eight hours basically behind the door. Now, what you do behind the door is up to you. If it takes you an hour to go through your routine before you get into bed and wind down and you're ready to go to sleep, so be it. So let's say it takes you an hour to wind down, which it takes me about an hour to wind down after a flight. Um, and you know, then I'm getting ready to go to sleep. And then I wake up an hour prior to van time. Personally, that, that's my comfort zone where I don't feel rushed. And then it's an hour. And then it's an, we do 90 minute van times. We don't do our van times at legacy. We do 90 minutes prior to showtime. So, or 90 minutes prior to the flight. So that gives you enough time to, you know, usually it's about 15, 20 minute van ride. But that gives you enough time to get there. So really, are you getting eight hours of rest? No, you're probably getting much less. Um, so did the FAR 117 in this particular example improve our quality of life and our restability? In some aspects, yes. But more than the very few reduced rest layovers that we used to have, it allowed the company or the airlines to fly us longer days. And I think yeah. it, it actually benefited the airlines more than it benefited the pilots. Yeah, I've 
I got to tell you, I, I think they're the, I don't know. I don't want to say this without sounding like I'm too old, but I think a major factor for me is that, you know, I'm getting older. <laughs> you know, that's, Stop that's that, Rob. I, Stop it. I, I know. I know. I, I hate getting old and I hate to admit it. And I used to be really active when I was younger and, and I have stopped doing that. So that's partly my fault. Um, but uh, you know, as you know, as if you were younger as a kid, teenager, you know, those kids have unbelievable amount of energy and staying power, you know, they could stay up till all hours of the morning um, and, uh, you know, do things and get right back up and, you know, oh, I'm tired. But then as soon as you get going, you're good. And I used to be like that, too. But as I get older, um, you know, <laughs> I need my rest, you know, and, uh, you know, so I think you know, along the same lines of what you're talking about is these long days, uh, these long legs, long days, you know, eight, eight and a half hours of flying, which is a lot longer what we used to do at, uh, you know, at Sandpiper. Yeah. And, um, and we'd occasionally have those 12 hours, 14 hour duty days, um, at Sandpiper. And, you know, we're getting those quite often here at Legacy. Uh, so those are also wearing on you. Yeah. Um, you know, and then of course they sprinkle in a couple of what we like to dub airport, airport appreciation sits, you know, two, three, three hours. Hour, yeah. Sit yep. in, out, of, and out of base, but in a base takes, you know, <laughs> takes the wind out of your sails. And, uh, so by the time you get to your overnight, uh, you're right. You know, with the van ride, um, long days, you know, and then you sprinkle in a little bit of weather and just natural human factors with stress, mm -hmm. uh, you're exhausted when you get to your overnight. And, you know, I, I try to like, you know, Roger was going to do it, but unfortunately his back hurts. You know, I try to do what you guys do too. I try to go to the gym, work out, get out, go for a walk, but sometimes you just don't have that time. You know, you get in either too late or you're, uh, you're out too early different time zone, whatnot, or you commute it in, you know, I, we don't have to do that, but, uh, whatever the case is, uh, and that, that all plays a factor, um, in, in, you know, these rests, uh, time amount of time of rest you have. So anyway, uh, now I think, yeah, I think the, what you were talking about as you're getting older, I think it's not that we're getting older because I think my mind is sharper now than it was even 10 years ago. I think, and Roger could probably attest to this, as we all can, our recovery time gets yeah. stretched out. Whereas when we were young, we could go and only get a few hours of rest and go out and you know party hard and then the next day perform perfectly fine and not feel any of the repercussions of that. And as you get older, it takes you longer and longer and longer to recover. So when you tweak your back... Uh, when you stay up too late, when you didn't get enough rest, now instead of bouncing back with a Red Bull and and some <laughs> pop rocks, <laughs> now you gotta now you have to really kind of baby yourself, get the rest. You need more rest. You need more hydration. You need more exercise in order to kind of just keep up with the demands of the day. Let alone these, you know, pushing it a little harder. And I, I think that's what that uh, OLD flares up. You know, yep. that's that's what happens. The old E. It takes longer to recover. Is. The recovery time's definitely different, that's for sure. 
Yeah. So all yeah. you young pilots out there that are, you know, listening and or uh, you listeners that are like young and were like, oh, yeah, I could totally do this. Go, go, go. Enjoy it while you can. And if you could bottle up uh, a pill that would make recovery time faster for old guys like us, <laughs> you'll be uh, worth millions. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about um, the AA closing bases and hear about the Reno Air Races and much more right after the break. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Well, we've been talking about the, the FAA's denial of the ATP restrictions or our requirements uh, that Republic Airways tried to get an exemption for uh, and whether or not that's good. We also were talking a little bit about FAR 117, the rest requirements, and does it really mean more rest for the pilots? But uh, let's switch gears a little bit. And on the second half of the show, I wanted to talk about an article that came up just about six days ago that indicated that American Airlines is going to close its flight attendant bases in San Francisco and in Sacramento, California. This uh, is coming from an article from simplyflying.com. It was written by Riley Pickett, published uh, about six days ago, and it went on to stay to say... American Airlines recently made an internal announcement that it will soon close its San Francisco, California flight attendant base. The airline has stated that it has no intentions of growing its operation at the San Francisco International Airport, or SFO. It claims that the decision comes as the domicile has become more of a burden than a blessing for the airline. American used to have a substantial presence in San Francisco. In the late 20th century, American was one of the airport's most prominent airlines. As time has progressed, the airline's presence has slowly shrunk. It expects the demand at SFO will remain relatively unchanged in the years to come without the prospect of growth potential. It has decided to reassign its flight attendants. Ten years ago, the airline closed its pilot domicile at the airport, it has tried to keep the base open for flight attendants in the Bay Area as long as possible. However, it has reached a point where keeping the base available for a few hundred flight attendants using the domicile is no longer profitable. Efforts to connect cabin crew on trip from SFO have been an expense for the airline for years. In an internal announcement, it stated that we worked hard to keep our flight attendant base open since we knew many flight attendants still call it home. As we look to the future, we expect SFO to maintain the same level of flying as it does today, but there are no plans to grow and no future flying prospects based on our current network strategy. Over the past 10 years or so, our SFO flight attendants base has become less and less efficient, especially when it comes to the supportability out of network and schedule. So we've been seeing a few news headlines and they've been talking about, oh, you're not going to be able to fly, you know, I'm an American anymore out of San Francisco. And why are they doing this? It's not true. It's none of it's true. It's this, they decided not to have a base there, which means the flight attendants will not originate and end out of San Francisco. They'll probably originate and end out of a different base like Dallas or 
or Charlotte or something else. Um, so what does that mean to the public? They will see no change whatsoever. Um, maybe even an improvement. Maybe. <laughs> I hate to say it that way, but, you know, in, in situations of uh, off-schedule operations where you have delays and stuff where, you know, those flight crews were by the contract, had to get them back to their base, you know, and now you have to restaff it with something else. Now, uh, I don't know. I think uh, it's just going to be easier for the airline to uh, make make the schedules work on the flight attendant side. And I do feel for the, uh, you know, those San Francisco based flight attendants. I know, yeah. you know, a lot of them have been here for a while and, and um, they're excellent flight attendants. I've flown with a couple of them, but um, you know, it just sucks that they're closing down their base. Cause you know, what better way to be employed at, at a company and, you know, be able to just work out of your, you know, where you live, you know, yeah. that's awesome. That's probably the best scenario ever in the airline environment. Uh, and unfortunately they're, there's, these guys are being forced to be displaced yeah, and go elsewhere, which most of them I would imagine would go to LA. Oh, um, that's, but, I'm glad you said that because LA, yeah. and this is a quote from the company itself, mm -hmm. American has said to its employees in an internal email, L.A. will not have any vacancies for displaced flight attendants despite its desirable geographic proximity to San Francisco. Yeah. There are several reasons for this. Chiefly, there is a lengthy waiting list of approximately 200 displaced former LAX flight attendants who already mm -hmm. have priority on the return. And when, yeah. a couple, when you couple this with little to no changes to our LAX network particularly post-pandemic, we don't see our yeah. LAX flight attendant base growing in 2023. Therefore, yeah. it looks like DFW will be, be the yeah. closest option because Phoenix also is a very, yeah. very senior base. Yeah. So yeah, well, I how, think they, how many people are affected by this? A couple yeah, hundred, to about 200. Yeah. See, I think, I think there's, 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 a, there's something that's not being said here and I think it's strategical for now because they don't want to make any promises they can't keep. But you know, here's my take, and this is just a get best guess estimate. Hold, hold know, on, it's, it's this is strategical. Is, is is that what this is? Yeah, yeah, I think okay. it's strategical because they don't want seriously. I don't. I believe it. They don't want to say it from a you know business perspective, uh, kind of like the NDA non disclosure kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But you know, the big thing right now is we all know from legacy airlines that LA has, has a, you know, severely reduced schedule international routes on the heavies. Right. And a lot of those crews are having to uh, deadhead to other bases to, you know, work those trips. Right. Well, a lot of that also has to do with the pandemic, obviously. Um, and Boeing not being able to deliver, um, wide body aircraft on time because of the uh, delays they've had. Well, my take is that now that Boeing is starting to move aircraft again, that there will be a new push for flying out of LA because that's a market that is kind of like the New York market where it's, you know, high dollar money uh, to, you know, to go to, you know, Asia and all that stuff. And now that we're going to be able to have the aircraft that, you know, eventually they're going to put planes there 
And now you're going to be opening up a base, not opening up the base, but allowing more crew members to move in and staff those positions. But right now they can't say that because it may preempt, you know, whoever else is there. I think United is, is also there and, you know, other carriers that are in the area to, you know, strike accordingly. So yeah, anyway, United, United has traditionally yeah. um, had a foothold in San Francisco yeah. um, big time. Yep. So, you know, uh, the American doesn't want to compete with that uh, for whatever yeah. reason. Hold on a second. I don't think they can. I don't think they have the aircraft to do it. No. That's that's my point. No. You know, it's just it's not there now. And see, and, and logistically, when you have like an Airbus or a 737 flying in and out of a base, you yeah. need what, four, maybe five flight attendants per flight? When you have yeah. a 777 or a... a 787 flying out of a base. Now you're looking at what 10, 20 12, like 20, maybe even yeah. depending on how many class configuration. Well, it is. yeah, seriously, like when they go overseas, you know, you have those long, they have you to need like 20 and flight attendants. Yeah. yeah. And that's what LA does is primarily yeah. on the heavies. They were doing, yeah. you know, Auckland and Australia and yeah. Asia. And so if you need a really high ratio of flight attendants out of Los Angeles and San Francisco, but if you're not doing that flying, what are yeah. you doing with these people? So right. it makes sense to reduce the base. Now, they closed the pilot base 10 years ago, and that was a result um, of, of the merger between America and U.S. Airways, America West, and just they just closed the base. They said, oh, we don't need to do that because it's going to be redundant, and then you're going to have to have a chief pilot, and you're going to have to have all this stuff. So it, financially, it makes sense to close the base. They'd rather pay for the hotel rooms than to staff a base. Think about prior to the pandemic, um, L.A. and L.A. was was big and it was growing, I believe. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think they have such a backlog of people trying to get to L.A., of, of flight attendants trying to get to L.A. We were even considering um, using Seattle as a stepping stone over to uh, – you know, with the alliance with Alaska as a, and we're using um, Seattle as a stepping stone over to, uh, you know, Europe and stuff like that, or Asia. Um, and, you know, since the pandemic and the reduction in the airplanes there, there's another, that's another reason, I guess, is what I'm trying to say is why they're kind of in that little rut <laughs> for, for, uh, for flight attendants in, in LA. I think it just, they're just waiting for it to grow. It, it has to grow. That's, there's nothing else we have other than Phoenix on the West coast, you know, yeah. for big bases. And if you look East coast, man, we have them all up, up and down the East coast with, yeah. you know, Miami, Charlotte, Philly, New yeah. York. And as that article mentioned as well, um, that, uh, they're not going to be changing any flying out of San Francisco. So, right. um, it just makes sense to, if they're not going to grow it, why have it as a base? Yeah. I have, I have no input on this. <laughs> I feel bad for the people that, you know, live yeah. in Northern California, especially if they're not even giving them L.A. as an option. That sucks. I know. It yeah. does, man. Well, L.A. Is a, was a very senior base because of that, all the heavy. And now that they've taken out the 7576, the, and really the I think the only thing that flies in and out of here is a triple seven, and I don't even think it's doing domestic or even a 7.8. I see 7.8s there. Um, yeah. but they're not really doing that frequency to do international, not yet. 
it'll come back. But, you know, and it's a super senior base. Like every, everyone that you fly in and out of LAX, uh, flight attendant wise, you know, they're, uh, the other day I had the entire uh, flight attendant crew. It was five of them. We we're going to, they were doing a Honolulu turn. So they were going LA to Honolulu and then turning the airplane and coming back. And they had an extra flight attendant because they were running brakes to do that. So they were legal. It's augmented crew. Mm-hmm. Not one flight attendant had a seniority higher than triple digits. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? And they were, they were going to run a poll and give the winner a, like a bottle of champagne from the airplane. <laughs> and they were going to ask them <laughs> if whoever could guess as close as possible to their combined seniority of five flight attendants. And I'll tell you, it was over 200 years. 200? Yeah, it was over incredible. 200. It was well over 200 years. One of them had 52 years with the company. That's incredible, man. So, you know, and, and I yeah. forget the name of the, the, the comedian. He went on, I think it was Jay Leno at the time. And he said, yeah, if you want to you know, go to your grandma's for, for Christmas, you fly on United. If you want to you know, see your grandma working for Christmas, you fly on American. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> Betty, was her name Betty Nash? She's the number it's one. It's slightly better she's now. It, it's slightly better now. Yeah. They're hiring. They're, yeah. they're hiring like gangbusters because they realize um, it's cheaper to hire three new hire flight attendants than keep one senior mama <laughs> and close their base, close enough senior bases. And guess what? Yeah. Some of them are going to quit. There you go. And then when yeah. they quit, that lowers your pay scale. So you save money. And you can hire three for the price of what? You know. Yep. Um, I, yeah, I know how businesses run. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, we were talking about LA, and I just don't know if uh, all you listeners out there realize. I know Roger and Rob obviously uh, saw the latest video that I posted on YouTube under the Squawk Ident and Aviation Podcast page. Um, the links are usually in the show notes. Uh, they're also on the website, aviatortony.com. But we recently did a video, the three of us actually read a little history of the Los Angeles International Airport, uh, was able to document it with some nice photos and really cool uh, history of LAX. Yeah, it's interesting. So on the onset of the show today, we we're talking about how do you deal with having to use a lav in flight, you know, all this uh, urgent physiological needs that we have and the how they should be prioritized as a pilot in command of an aircraft or, you know, pilot in the cockpit um, and not to wait, not to delay. Because if you do, you know, it, it could be pretty nauseous up there and uncomfortable mm-hmm. for the other guy. Speaking of <laughs> gas, Rob, you had a fume incident. Tell me about this. I did. I did. This happened last month um, in August. Uh, we were operating flights between, let's see, LaGuardia and DC. Um, we guess we give that the nickname of the LaGuardia DC shuttle. Uh, so we were, the schedule was LaGuardia, DC, back to LaGuardia, back to DC, and then we were supposed to head to uh, Portland, Maine that night. Um, so long day, coupled um, coupled with uh, old airplanes and stormy weather in the Northeast Corridor made for a very, very long and um, challenging day for us. 
Um, so the smoke event um, occurred on the third flight of the day. So we already went down to DC and uh, made our way back to LaGuardia. We were flying the same airplane um, that we brought in and um, <clears throat> a thunderstorm had uh, moved its way over to the airfield, uh, which, you know, made a, a ground stop for, for LaGuardia, couldn't take off, couldn't land. And the storm was right over the field, lightning, heavy rain. Um, the winds weren't bad, but um, anyway, you know, we're not launching in those conditions. Well, we had already started two engines at the gate, which is kind of normal, our normal procedure. And uh, we decided to uh, start the APU and uh, proceed to uh, shut down the motors to conserve gas um, as we were on one of LaGuardia's taxiways, which turned into a parking lot because <laughs> no airplanes were moving. So uh, we started the APU, waited the three minutes per our manual before we opened up the APU bleed valve to uh, transfer the, uh, the uh, pneumatic bleed from engine bleed to the uh, APU bleed, which obviously is our um, air conditioning power source to keep the airplane cool when the engines are off. And uh, so anyways, we opened up the bleed and within about 30 seconds, we started to smell the rant. I think we, the technical term is rancid. It's like a, a chemical smelling. Yeah. Uh, and, and I've heard it, I've read it in our, in our manuals. Uh, some of the other odors could be like a, 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 a locker room sneaker, socky smell kind of smell. Um, and I'm not sure how, I, I, not, that's not obviously the, the right term for it, but like, it's something similar to that. Like a gym locker room? Yeah, like, like a, a gym BO? locker room. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've heard that too? Yeah. Yeah, you have. Smell, yeah. So, so this, this didn't smell like that. I mean, this was like very, very like acidic. Uh, Ooh. It really hit you in the respiratory areas, like your, your throat, your nasal passages. And it was, it, it came on very, very subtly. It, it, you smelled it, but you're like, okay, you know, it'll probably go away. Cause sometimes when you turn on the bleed, you kind of get different odors here, depending if you had like uh, de-icing going on, which we didn't. Um, it was raining really hard outside, so it could have been a combination of maybe some of the, uh, uh, we're just guessing that, you know, maybe some rain that dripped into the, uh, either the packs or the APU bleed system um, might have been mixed with a little bit of um, residual, uh, you know, oils or whatever it could have been, and that was burning off, um, could have been soap or whatever that was used to wash your plant, I don't know, but um so anyways, 30 seconds, you start to smell it. And, you know, I, I kind of looked at the captain. He's like, yep, I smell it too. Um, but about a minute, minute and a half goes by. Next thing you know, we get a call from the flight attendant. Hey, you guys smell that? We're like, yeah, we smell it. And it wasn't very strong in the cockpit yet. The flight attendant's like, it's really strong back here. And we're looking at each other like, well, when you say really strong, like, you know, give me a level of uh, one to 10 kind of really strong. She was like, it's about a six and it's going to a seven right now. Wow. And we were like, Oh, okay. And no sooner did she, than she said that did the smell in the cockpit escalate from about a one to two to about a five to six for us. Wow. 
it it started, it just went fast. So immediately, Captain just turned off the bleed. I went on oxygen, and I said, "Let's just run this uh, cabin, you know, whatever the quick <laughs> the quick action um, smoke or fumes checklist." Yeah. Uh, and so and so awesome because we had both for training because <laughs> we had training coming up. And um, uh, excuse me one second, something happened here on my microphone, but we. Uh, Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, you went. You guys out, hear me? Okay. You, you went out for a second there, but and I'm back now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, anyways, we went right into the checklist, and um, anyway, that that you know forced us to power down most of the systems and electrical systems, including uh, pneumatic systems. And right when we got to that point, we were looking at each other like we know we need to get back to the gate asap. Um, Thankfully, we didn't shut down both engines yet. Uh, we only shut down one engine because uh, we were anticipating just one extra movement because just think about it. If we were <laughs> out there, both engines shut down with just the APU running right. and we yeah. decided to shut down the APU, we would have been dead as a doornail. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, immediately I got on the horn with ATC and said, hey, you know, we got a ground emergency. We want to return back to the gate. Um, and we, you know, like to get back there as ex expeditiously as possible. And um, as soon as uh, they cleared us, we got cleared into the gate. And, um, th and that process only took about five minutes to coordinate. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but the, the, my biggest thing was, is that smell never really went away mm. um, after we did everything on the checklist. Um, so anyways, we got to the gate. As soon as we opened the door, there was a mechanic standing right there. Oh, wow. And he walked on and he said, that's hydraulic fluid, fellas. Oh. He said, I don't know where it's coming from, but it's made your way, made its way into your pack system. And it's burning it. And that's the smell of burnt hydraulic fluid. Wow. So, Which is must... toxic. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, without getting into too much details after this, um, Passengers deplane. A couple of them were complaining a little bit. Um, we did have um, it did have some medical um, personnel standing by in case anybody needed it, um, but it didn't seem like anybody. Uh, I didn't see anybody request it, and I didn't see any of the uh, medical personnel and to our passengers. However, me and the captain looked at each other, and uh, we, we I asked them, "Say, how do you feel?" You know, it's like as far as I'm concerned, you know, I'm done because uh, I. I just inhaled all these fumes yeah. um, and granted I was on oxygen for the last 10, 15 minutes. Um, you know, I don't feel safe operating an aircraft, you know, without knowing how I'm going to feel in 20, 30, 40 minutes, I may get sick or, yeah. you know, and I Good. really, and I had, I did have a, a light low grade kind of, it was kind of, I don't know, it was a headache or like brain fog, but it was, uh, you know, I think it was coupled with, uh, you know, the end, we were at the end of our, and it was like 10 o'clock at night at this point yeah. because of the delay. So it was probably coupled with a little bit of fatigue, um, you know, probably coming down a little bit on the adrenaline too. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I was like, man, I, I'm not sure I'm ready to operate another airplane tonight. And besides, I need to get into the FOM. Well, we need to get in the FOM and dig into the smoke odor fumes event for, uh, you know, kind of the flow chart and see who we need to contact and it ended up 
coming down to we needed to contact the uh, duty pilot and uh, also Medair to uh, document and log the uh, the you know the the situation or the events. Yeah, and get that on record. So we ended up um, being removed from that and sent home. You know, put they put us up overnight in LaGuardia, and then uh, we were sent back home the next day. So long story short. Yeah, it was pretty exciting. Um, you know, got to actually use a uh, a line item on our quick action index on the QRC. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And for those yeah. uh, listeners out there that that may not understand what a QRC is, so in the in the flight deck, at least at our company, we have what's called a, a QRC, a quick reference card. Now on this card, it's accessible for for both pilots. It's it's on the side wall on the Airbus, at least of the center pedestal. Uh, some airplanes have it up on the dash. I think the seven thirty seven has it up on the dash in between both pilots, so they only need one um, of these things to to kind of uh, reference. Um, and anytime anything comes up, like an ecam message, what you do is the pilot flying says my aircraft and the pilot monitoring immediately grabs the QRC and states what's on the ECAM or what the anomaly is, the non-normal. And in your case, it would have been cockpit smoke fumes. And that is on the QRC, meaning there's stuff you do immediately before you do anything else. Quick action. Quick action. Okay. Now, we rarely ever, unless you're in the flight simulator during your recurrent training or something, we rarely ever go through all those. Um, do you remember what was on your QRC? Nope. <laughs> in short, uh, negative. Yeah. <laughs> no, because there's so many things, you know, you just, I think there's some big items that you see on the QRC, you know, obviously engine failure, dual engine failure at low altitude is a big one. Um, you know, it's <laughs> the one we get almost every other flight which is to break hot on the ground <laughs> at E-cam the gate exception. You know, it's an, yeah. it's E-cam E-cam exception yeah. Yeah. um and then you know there's a number of them that are on there but you know i i purpose i know what's on the qrc but i don't know the the actual procedure for, for each one um and i try not to memorize it because i don't want to um I don't want to memorize something that is not that i don't have to memorize it but i'd rather read and do on the QRC, yeah. Um, that way, I do it procedurally and not go off of memory and you know see it and then reverse what I was supposed to do at the at that particular time because I did it off of memory. Well, if you memorize yeah. it, they'll just change it and then you then you do. It yeah, that's one. that's true too. <laughs> but flat out, I just don't know it. I don't know the yeah. procedures. <laughs> I know it's on there because you have to read them. But um, anyway, yeah, I, I don't remember what's on the uh, that, that that actual. I'm. Pretty confident it involves turning off, you know, galley power and yeah, um, oxygen yeah, mask on, crew communication. Oxygen mask on was the first thing. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, it's exciting, so, and, and I'm glad you yeah. got through it unscathed. Yeah. And um, the other thing I would recommend, uh, if something like this happens to you, and if it's an event that will remove you from flying because there's potential for health risk. Uh, the other the other thing I could think of is laser strike. If you got hit by a laser and you your eyes hurt, um, don't hesitate to say, you know what? Uh, I want to see a doctor. I want yeah. a layover. Well, 
uh, yeah, I'd like a medical, I'd like to go to urgent care or whatever and get checked out. So there's a record. Yeah. Just yeah. so there's well, a record. Well, that's kind of why we did the Medair thing, because there is a record of that talking to the physician at Medair. And I do understand what you're saying is going to see an actual physically be seen by a doctor. And there's definitely a lot of value into doing that. Um, yeah, I get it. Definitely good advice. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you made it out okay and uh, that it was a successful event. Um, yeah, yeah. Skydrawl is not something to play around with. Don't touch it. Nope. Uh, don't get it on your skin. It will burn. Um, don't 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 inhale it. <laughs> don't breathe burning fumes. Yeah. Um, but I was yeah. gonna say it's not my first time inhaling any kind of hydraulic fluid. I mean, we've <laughs> I've done it, done it on accident in the military. You know, and we're taking apart airplanes and troubleshooting things, and you know it. It's that inevitable you're going to explain get... so much. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's why my teeth are discolored. And um, anyway. <laughs> hey, guys, check this out. Oh, man. Yep. So we're going to introduce a, a new segment to the podcast. Uh, Captain Keith Wolzinger uh, has been on the show. He has his own podcast uh, where he explores klezmer music from around the world he's a triple seven captain for legacy airlines and he's been sending me um really kind of documentation on where he is in the world and recently he sent me a video file on one of his layovers from milan italy and i'd just like to play a little bit of that for you now hi there squawk ident friends captain keith here on my layover in Milan, Italy. I started off today by going down to the canal area, going to the olive oil shop. They also sell some lovely wine there. They can get a great deal and it's very popular with the crews. And I went along the canal area to see what's going on and see all the people, a lot of Europeans out traveling today. And he's, this video has a lot of photos and some video footage that he's captured over there in the canals in Milan. Pretty cool. The canal is very popular with the tourists, and it's a lovely day out there today, as you can see from uh, the bright sun shining and the warm temperatures. There's also uh, boats along the canal. You can take a look and see the boats going by. And what I'll do is, uh, when I get a chance, I'll, I'll have some of this video uploaded to either the website or on YouTube. Of course, their churches are everywhere, and there is one. And then I stopped for dinner and had uh, a lovely dinner along the canal with some espresso and uh, caprese and some risotto milanese. So I hope you get to uh, have a layover sometime in Milan, and I hope you enjoy. Ciao. Ciao, bello, grazie mille. Well, that is awesome. You know, when you're uh, when you're a triple seven captain and <laughs> layovers in Milan, uh, thank you so much, uh, Captain, for sharing that with us here. Um, and the the video and the photos were were pretty cool. It was a beautiful day out there. Yeah, it looked like it. How many how many face masks did you count? Wasn't paying attention. Not one. No one no one good. in Italy is outside good. outside, you know, who knows who knows what the rules yeah. are now, but yeah. yeah. So yeah, thank good. you, uh 
Captain, for uh, sharing that with us. Uh, keep the information coming, and uh, we'll we'll have to do a new segment. Where in the world is Captain Keith? Matter of fact, I just received a messenger uh, notation from him just <laughs> a minute ago, and let's see where he is today. Uh, today, coming back from. Oh, it looks like from Milan, heading back to JFK on flight. It's all something to aspire to. Flight 199. Where yeah, in the world are we in these foreign countries? <laughs> yeah. Shopping in Milan. Hey. Nice. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice little... Caprizi in Milan. Risotto Milanese, va bene. That's so cool. Well, yeah, uh, Rob, I know you, you're, uh, you're getting to that point where you got to go work on your, your daughter's yes. Jetta. Yeah, I got to do that. I got to run a, an errand for her real quick since uh, we're down to two cars here at the uh, the Jesus household. I know, big world problems, but um, yeah, I got to go run an errand and then um, hit that car because I got to go to work on Saturday. Mm. Got a full day tomorrow with uh, other projects I got to take care of before I head out. So yeah, what's I your next to... trip look like for on Saturday? Um, I'm actually going to go to Mexico City. I hmm. do a turn. I forget where I do my turn, and then I end up in Mexico City Saturday night, and then uh, one leg back to Dallas on Sunday. I think we get back Sunday mid-morning, and I'll be done. So uh, it's a nice, easy two-day trip. Yeah, very nice. I've got uh, one on yeah. beautiful five days starting tomorrow morning. I do L.A. to Cabo. Cabo is to Phoenix. Phoenix to DFW. And All it's right. a uh, a very short layover. Time to get here. Uh, Nine thirty at night. Ah, oh, jeez. I know. And then Too I leave. Uh, it's at eleven eleven thirty showtime the next morning. So there's yeah. your there's your yeah. ten hours. And then uh, DFW to DCA, DCA to Phoenix. Get into Phoenix around seven thirty on Saturday, and then Sunday morning, uh, Phoenix to Maui. One mm. leg. That's seven hours and fifty seven minutes of flight time or at least of nice. of duty time. Uh, and then uh, the Monday evening, leave Maui at uh, 11 p.m. and land at Los Angeles International at 7.20 in the morning on day five. Wow, nice. On Tuesday. There yeah. you go. So Cool. Yeah. You want to know my flight schedule? Yeah, what's yours doing? You're going to be in Cancun for how long? Or Cabo? Well, I'm glad that you asked that, Rob. On Saturday, I go back to San Diego. And next Thursday, I come back to Cabo. And Sunday, I fly back to San Diego. And then the next Thursday, I fly back to Cabo. And on Sunday, I fly back to San Diego. And that's my next two and a half weeks. So basically, uh, long weekends. Ping pong ball. Every weekend. I have four day. Yeah, I have uh, four day, three nights stays in Cabo for three weeks in a row. And but the nice thing is, you have in different airplanes. You have uh-huh. days. Aircraft types. Days nice. in Cabo, not hours, not 12, oh, you, 13. You, you, days. you didn't miss that part, huh? No, no. Yeah. Days. Days. Rent days a car, go to restaurants. You need go to go to... get a massage, dude. You, I think yeah. you need to get that hot stone thing on your back. I think, you know, I know you said you get the EBGBs about people touching you, but dude. I don't, I don't care do about something. that. Captain Roger doesn't have $200 to spend for somebody to rub his back. Oh, it's Mexico. But you got to get off the resort. You got to get out of the resort. I think you need to go. I heard a story more. about a guy that went off the resort one time. No one ever heard from him again. <laughs> you might, be you right. never know. You might, you know. Uh, you never know. That's all, I need. That's all I need <laughs> to know. You'll be fine. You never, you never know. You'll hey, where's fine. the donkey? 
<laughs> I heard there's a donkey show. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, Rob. Well, right, thank you. you feel better, Rob. Thank you so much for joining well, thanks, us. I appreciate it. We'll talk right, to you Tony. soon. All right. See you guys. Take care. All right. Bye. Later. Well, uh, well, listener, thank you for sticking with us. Uh, it's back to uh, myself and Captain Roger. And then there were two. And then there were two. Well, we, we talked about, you know, Keith and, and his layover in beautiful Milan, Italy. Well, he's not the only one that reached out to the show this week. Uh, John Gruber, uh, a returning guest of the show, has been on the show, what, four or five times now? Uh, he's building his Lancer legacy uh, on Instagram. You can follow the progress on his Lancer. Last I saw yesterday, he was still working on his panel, uh, putting on switches and, and designing that up. I don't know how many times he's he's cut a new panel. He just wants to get it perfectly right and totally understand that. Um, you can follow his progress uh, on Instagram at Lancer underscore legacy. Uh, that's where he puts his video journal of all the work he does every day that he works on the aircraft. Uh, last weekend, though, he was not working on the airplane. He was at the Reno Air Races. And John sent us some audio feedback, and you know, I'm very thankful. Thank you so much, John, for doing that, and I'm really happy to share that with all of you right now. Good morning from Reno, Nevada. I'm here at the home of the Reno Air Races at the Stead Airport. Currently, the briefings are beginning, 7.30 for the sport class, so the pilot briefings are happening. I can see Peavine Peak to the south of the airport right now. To the north, the visibility looks a little less, maybe about three to four miles. Uh, we're hoping for better visibility today. The wildfires that are happening around the Lake Tahoe area have been hindering some of the racing so far. But uh, today I'll be in the pits with Joe Caraggio and his legacy and Ramp Rat Racing. Uh, there should be more updates and more to come today, but let's hope we get some good racing in. Uh, he then sent me uh, another audio clip a couple hours later, and this is what he said. All right, folks, 10.30 here at Reno. We've got good visibility. Right now, the unlimited class is out there just finishing up their heat. We've got sport class gold heading out, Andrew Finley. You've got uh, in uh, steel number 30. You've got, uh, let's see, one, two, three legacies besides Andy. You've got two glass airs, a Thunder Mustang. They're going to be taxiing out here shortly. Visibility is great right now for racing. Uh, you can hear all the noise in the background. Some things are moving. And, uh, and then on the next uh, morning, uh, I believe this was Sunday morning, he sent me a final audio clip. And here's what John had to say. Here we are on Sunday, September 18th, Reno Air Races. Just finished up the silver sport class uh, pairing, and we've got Sean Van Hatten that took first place, followed by Magic in number 40, second place. He ran out of nitrous right before the end of the race, and Sean was able to get around him. Very exciting race. Formula One, uh, the biplanes have all had great races, very close, and a lot of passing happening. Uh, we've got the Sport Gold coming up here soon, and just been a very exciting day, and very happy that the weather's uh, cooperated to have a good end of the week here. So, so cool uh, for John for uh, sending us some audio feedback, audio updates on the Reno Air Races. Now, I've, I was telling him I've never been... It's so close to me, relatively speaking, and I've never been to the Reno Air Races, and it just was always kind of 
cool to hear about it from pilots that I've flown with, uh, a lot of captains and first officers that are local here in the area in, in Southern California that either attend or participate in the Reno Air Races every year. Um, it seems like, you know, you always kind of run across somebody in the uh, industry that participates in those races. Um, and you would think that it's a tremendous amount of money that is uh, required in order to get an airplane up and ready for Reno Air Races. But I found out that it really is not that bad, that uh, if you're a a hobbyist or an enthusiast, you could soup up an airplane, buy an airplane, soup it up a little bit and get qualified. Um, that's what John is doing. He's building his Lancer legacy with its purpose to put it in the Reno Air Races. He's going to Pylon Racing School. He has to get certified in order. You can't just go and go, I want to enter to win. You have to be certified to participate, go through all the safety classes and, and courses. And John's doing that. And it is actually a really cool event to to participate in. If you want to find out more about the Still National Championship Air Races and Air Show, you can go to their website at airrace.org. There you'll find out all about how you can be a part of the Reno Air Races every year. Over 50 years ago, the first plane went up in the Nevada desert to kick off what would become the National Championship Air Races and a legacy was born. A legacy of history, heritage, and preservation. Of daring, imagination, and wonder. Of memories made, traditions formed, and legends created. One amazing race at a time. Engines roaring, crowds cheering, hearts pounding. Eight planes racing wingtip to wingtip 50 feet above the ground at speeds of up to 500 miles an hour. This is the fastest motorsport on earth. A one-of-a-kind thrill you have to see, hear, and feel to believe. This is classic, cool, and contemporary all rolled into one. This is life at 500 miles per hour. This is the National Championship Air Races. The 2023 National Air Champion Air Races will be held on September 13th through the 17th of 2023. So, mark them down in your calendar if you're interested to experience the national air races now is your time to start planning well as we wrap up the show today i wanted to say a big thank you to cameron for reaching out to us here at squawk ident he sent uh, me an email through the website and i just wanted to uh, read what he wrote he says good day sir my name is cameron i am currently flying for Endeavor Air as an FO on the CRJ 700-900 series. I've been listening to the podcast since its inception, and I have loved every episode. You and the crew have inspired me on many occasions to keep pushing through, even if things look grim. Thank you for all that you do. Keep up the amazing work, and I look forward to listening to many more episodes. On a side note, I was curious if you had any tips on getting an interview at Legacy Airlines. I went to a meeting of the Chiefs event in Minneapolis, St. Paul earlier this week, and Legacy is my dream airline to fly for. And who knows, maybe one day you could be my captain. Just curious if you had any advice on how to take the next steps to landing my dream job with Legacy. Well, I'm glad you asked. My answer? I have no idea. <laughs> no, honestly though, uh, there, there are many things you can do. You're already in the industry. Congratulations, Cameron. Uh, and again, thank you for reaching out. 
Um, and congratulations to, you know, having a, a good job at Endeavor. Um, it's a reputable, very reputable company uh, and the CRJ 700-900 series, great airplane. Um, my best advice, and, and Roger, you might have, you know, something different to say, but I say keep at it and work on the bullet points. And what I mean by that are on your resume, on everyone's resume, there are bullet points usually at the bottom. Everyone focuses so much on the total flight time, uh, you know, their accomplishments, what schools they went to, but it's the bullet points that really set you apart. In my opinion, I used to hire and review, uh, resumes for my previous employer in my previous career. Uh, and I would go through hundreds of resumes and the ones that would make the short stack, which were the callbacks, uh, those always had those little extra things in there because you don't want to be just a number of flight time or type ratings, you know, that's all fine and dandy. Those are your qualifiers, but really what set you apart are all the extras. Uh, do you participate in any, uh, mentorship programs? Are you a member of any organizations that you participate in? Uh, no, I, I don't mean AOPA. <laughs> Everybody's got that. You pay to play for that. I want to know, are you, are you a member of anything of, of OBAP, of, um, even women in aviation, um, do you participate? Have you gone to any of their events? Uh, do you, are you a, a LOSA pilot, line uh, safety pilot? Uh, are, do you have the ability or have you ever been uh, a Czech airman or, you know, as a flight instructor? You know, how many people, were you a gold seal flight instructor? How many people did you have passed? All these little bullet points on your resume are what set you apart. Now, getting a job at a mainline carrier Really, they're looking for how diverse your resume is. Uh, they want to see how many type ratings you have uh, because they know that you can learn a new airplane, right? So if you've been flying only for a few years, then one type rating is sufficient. But if you've been flying for, say, 10 or 15 years and you still only have one type rating, which was my issue. I only had the one type rating and uh, I was told by a recruiter that, well, we'd like to see more than one because people get stuck in their ways and they don't want to change and they don't like changing. And that's a meter to how we judge whether or not you are willing to learn something new. Um, so they wanted to see multiple type ratings under my belt because of the time that I had. Um, so I ended up coming to Legacy Airline through what is known as a flow-through agreement. I was working for a wholly owned airline, Sandpiper, uh, the alias to my employer. And then after my seniority dictated an opportunity to go to a new hire class at Legacy Airlines, that's how I got over there. Uh, yeah, I tried to get through the front door and submitted my application. They want to see you update your hours often once you're qualified. If you're not qualified, if you don't meet their minimum requirements, then just put it in there, get it in there. That's great. But once you've reached their qualifications in terms of flight time and experience, they want to see you updating those hours at least every month. Um, at least that's what I was told. Another thing is go to those job fairs. Uh, you went to the Meet the Chiefs. That's fantastic. Now, keep going to those. Uh, you might have to commute in to go to another event. When you go to those events, meet people, have your business card or your 
resume or a letter, an introduction letter at minimum uh, in an envelope uh, and ready to hand it to someone. Maybe you'll meet someone from recruiting at an airline that you didn't even think was going to be an option. And somehow that might work. Um, we are always so, especially at the beginning of this career, we want to get into our, our goal, our dream job right away, immediately, right now. And I'm going to do everything I can to get there from straight line, point A to point B. But in reality, life is that sometimes we have to make some sidesteps and make a couple changes and a couple moves to get to your end goal. And sometimes the end goal never happens because one of those sidesteps turned out to be a better fit for you. So don't pigeonhole the fact that you love legacy and you want to get there. Put blinders on you for other opportunities. Sometimes those other opportunities will still get you there, but maybe even a better situation. And I know we are a seniority-based industry, so getting in the door first could make a huge difference in your career progression. So there's a lot to juggle. How do you get a job there? Um, it's, a, it's an impossibility to answer that honestly. I can, I can sit here and blow sunshine and tell you all kinds of tips and things that I think would work, but they might not work for you. So my best advice is keep doing what you're doing. Uh, work on those little bullet points. Volunteer when you can. And make yourself stand out in a community so that you can have a resume that at least warrants a callback to get on that short stack. Roger, what do you think? Um, so I'm going to come at this from a slightly different, on a couple different things. Um, first of all, Cameron, congratulations. That's great. Where, where you are is great and you are going to make it where you, wherever you want to go, you will be able um, to make it. And so no matter what, keep that in mind. These days is a perfect time to be a pilot. Things are moving um, really quick. I think that your initial question was like, you know, how do I get an interview? That's a really hard question to answer for, for everything that Tony had said. Uh, most of the initial you know, who they're going to interview comes down to a computer program at most every place now. And so they're looking for things like the bullet points, like the type ratings, like who knows what the computer programs are actually looking for. And so to answer the question, how to get an interview is hard. The more people you meet, like Tony said, um, the more things that you are involved in, the more meet the chiefs events that you go to, those will all help. In the end, who really knows because it's a computer program. Um, I know a guy that had, I don't know, I'm going to guess he was probably around 2,500 hours, got hired one type rating, got hired at Alaska, finished class at Alaska, inter or interviewed at Delta and got hired at Delta. By that time he had two type ratings, but still only about 2,500 hours because he was hired at Delta before even finishing his IOE at Alaska. Like time is not necessarily an issue. It's just kind of how these computer programs are going to sort you out. Yeah. My one big piece of advice that I'd have is once you get the opportunity to interview, put both feet forward in order to get the job. Once you have the interview, like I said, getting the interview, that's one thing. But once you have the interview, try and get that job that assuming that's that job you want, go for it. Do interview prep, have somebody prepare you, 
make sure that you know you have somebody that knows what their interview process is like so that when you step foot in for that interview that you've worked so hard to get and have achieved, that you are putting your best foot forward once you go into that room. Because I think that that's the bigger thing. You, you can control some things. You can't really control who gets an interview. But once you're in that room, you are selling yourself. And you, know, you want to take the idea that they are interviewing you and they want to hire you. That's where we have more control. Try not to, you know, I was going to say, try not to screw that up. It sounded a little harsh. I've interviewed several times and not gotten jobs. Um, I never did interview prep. I strongly suggest, by the way, that the guy that I was just kind of talking about, he did interview prep for both. He did interview prep for the Alaska. He did interview prep for the Delta because that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to get into the airlines and he did it. Um, and so that's my, my bigger piece of advice is once you actually get that interview to do the, do the legwork um, in order to put that best foot forward. So when you step in that room, you're presenting the best version of yourself with a little bit of spin on what they might be looking for. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you kind of nailed it on that because, you know, everybody that is interviewing that day wants the job. You're not there just because, oh, you know, they made me do it. No, you want, you want to work there. You want the job. But it's the candidate and you could tell right away, just like a flight instructor can tell if you studied for the lesson for the day, if you came prepared or you didn't, um, they can tell because that's all they do, you know, is, is interview. And they've been doing this a while. They can tell if you've prepped and sometimes the prep, it doesn't have to be a cheat sheet or a gouge. Sometimes the prep can be done with a search engine and you can figure out who's the CEO, who's the CFO, who's the president. Uh, where is the airline based? When did it get started? Who started it? What it, what airplanes do they fly? I mean, Wikipedia could answer all that stuff to whatever airline you want to go to. And what's the ticker um, identifier for the NASDAQ? Uh, what's the current stock price? These are questions that most pilots, they don't care. They want to fly airplanes. Oh, oh, well, you fly 737s and you fly this. Okay, well, what's the, what's the stock price today? Do you know? Uh, no? Well, I guess you don't want the job then. You know, that, that's kind of the attitude sometimes. And it really depends on who's doing the interview. Um, it's, it's something as little as that could sway their decision. So, yeah, absolutely what, what Roger is saying is go prepare. Do the prep. Um, and, you know, there's like airliners.net, I believe it is. Um, it's another good resource uh, for information about bases and current salaries and 401k plans. Do the homework. If you, you know, just get on Facebook, I hate to say it, but get on Facebook. And if you want to go fly for Delta, look for a Delta page and, for pilots and, you know, ask to, to ask a few questions or see what you can read on it. Um, there's so much prep you can do. You don't have to go out and spend hundreds of dollars for interview or resume prep if you don't want to. If you think your resume could benefit from it, then sure. But if you do the work yourself and you go prepared and you show a good attitude and you're humble, and when they ask you, when they're looking through your logbook and they ask you, well, what happened here? It says here that you, uh, you busted your instrument check right or something, for example. And you go, yeah, you know, that was a bad day for me. Um, I really learned a valuable lesson. 
Oh, it says here that you had a, an aircraft emergency when you were flying for, you know, ABC Airline. What happened there? Yeah, that was a crazy event. Um, you know, we, we all learned so much for that. We learned so much. And, you know, from that day forward, I, I've learned to you know, double check this and double check that. Every, every negative aspect from your career and your flight time and your progression, if you spin it to, yeah, I learned a lot from that. Um, you know, I see here you had an altercation with a, a co-pilot. What can you tell me? Yeah, that was really bad. I lost my cool that day and I, I learned not to ever do that again. Um, and I've learned the better ways to manage um, issues in the cockpit. And I think I'm a much better person now for it. Always spinning it to the positive, to the learning aspect in an interview will help. Um, how to get that interview? Now, <laughs> like Roger was saying, algorithms. Um, good luck. Keep going to those events. Keep introducing yourself. Um, and, and write down names. As soon as you leave those events, uh, have a little notebook with you and write down the names of everyone you spoke with. Get their business card. Um, oh, I spoke with this guy from Delta. And then the next time you go, you go, yeah, I came to the Meet the Chiefs uh, last month in Minneapolis and I decided to come here to Dallas today. Uh, I spoke with, you know, David from recruiting uh, when I was at that one. Uh, really nice guy. Is he here today? Oh, no, David's not here today, but uh, my name's Bob. Oh, oh, hey, Bob, nice to meet you. You've instantaneously developed a rapport and brought down that barrier of here's somebody I don't know give, handing me a resume because they want to work for us to, hey, this guy knows Bob. So, wow, you, you want to do an interview right now? That's how shit happens right there. Having the right charisma. And there are plenty of YouTube videos out there on charisma, on how to talk to people, how to talk to strangers, uh, how to win over your friends, right? Um, succeed in business, all these things. They're all related to your career in aviation. So work on that so that when those opportunities present themselves, that you'll have, like, like Roger said, both feet forward. Well, let me just uh, end the show here today by saying thank you to Alex for joining us for the few minutes at the beginning of the show before his flight. Very, very cool of him to stop in and say hello. I also want to say a big thank you to Captain Roger and Rob D for joining us and giving us their insight, and Rob for his story. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to the show today. A big thank you to John Gruber for sending us the audio feedback from the Reno Air Races this year. So cool to hear what has going on. I can't wait to hear about his participation in the pits, um, uh, helping out friends uh, participate in the Reno Air Races. Uh, I also want to say thank you to Captain Keith for sending us that feedback from his layovers in Milan. Uh, hopefully we can keep up with his his journey is like where in the world is Captain Keith uh, thing. I like that idea of having that segment throughout the show. Uh, I hope you, the listener out there, enjoyed our flight today. Uh, if you did, we will do hope that you pay it forward by sharing this podcast with friends or online. Make sure you subscribe or follow to the Squawk Head in podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. We also love receiving listener feedback. You can send us emails or even audio feedback via our website at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. You can also help us in the production of this show right there on the homepage. There is a place where you can donate and become a producer of the Squawk Ident podcast. Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram users can find us under Squawk Ident. And one final thank you to all of you 
for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty site down out there, but be safe and take care of each other. Bye, y'all.